Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are in the book of 2 Timothy and touched on this a little bit last week. Uh, We covered verses 10 through 17 in chapter 3. I want to come back to verses 16 and 17 and spend the morning there. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I believe the Bible has what we need to show us how to live. It, it, it tells us how we're to live for the Lord. And it's interesting how some people uh, want to have a scriptural basis for everything they do. And, and I, I believe that's okay to a point, but I reminded of a seminary student who wanted to have a scriptural basis for everything he did. And he felt it was on solid ground if he could quote a Bible verse every time he was about to do something. And that worked fine until he began to fall in love with a beautiful young lady, also at seminary. And he wanted to kiss her, but he couldn't find the Bible verse to back it up. So true to his conscience, he would walk her to the dorm each night, look at her longingly, and quickly say, good night. This went on for weeks, all the time he's searching for a Bible verse. And finally, he came across one in Romans that says, greet each other with a holy kiss. He thought, I've got the verse I need. He asked one of his professors, and the professor sort of shot it down. He said, that really doesn't have anything to do with kissing a girl. It had to do with church setting more than a dating situation. So he was still at a loss. That night, he's walking his girlfriend to the dorm. He was about to tell her good night. Well, she grabbed hold of him, pulled him in there, and gave him about a 10 to 15-second kiss. Pulled, pushed him back, and he's going, Bible verse, Bible verse. She grabbed him a second time, and just before she kissed him again, she said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I, I want you, I want to talk to you today about the Bible. And it's a little bit different, I, a little more topical, but again, I'm going to be using a lot of different scriptures. But, you know, the Bible is a book that has been maligned and downplayed for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's constantly attacked. In fact, the, the, the devil hates the Bible because it's the Word of God. And it's interesting that the very first words that the devil ever said to a human to Eve had to do with the Word of God. You can't believe it. You can't trust it. And so this morning, I hope you fall in love with your Bible again. Now, obviously, I want you to fall in love with Jesus, but I want you to be renewed in the way that you know what you have. I hope you bring your Bible to church. It's one thing to have it on a phone and one thing to have it on an iPad or whatever, but that's It's sort of easily to get distracted if somebody texts you or whatever when you're reading that, but I still love it when I see people bring their Bible to church. And do you remember the first time that you got a Bible? I want you to see some missionary footage of a group of Asian Christians 
who were getting their first Bible. Watch this. When's the last time you cried holding a Bible? When's the last time you actually said, God, thank you for your word? Chances are you've got more than one copy of it laying around home. You've probably got more than one, and you don't really think that much about it anymore because it's so available to us. But I want you to think for a moment about the Bible this morning. First, I want to mention the attraction and the appeal of Bible study and the Bible, the distinction of God's Word. All that we know concerning God comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning life and origin of life comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning the purpose of man, why we're here on this earth, comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning sin and man's true condition comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning God's love and the purpose of Christ coming into the world comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning salvation and how man can have a right standing with God comes from the Bible. And all that we know concerning the future life, what happens after we die, comes from the Bible. Who is the author of the Bible? What is the origination? I just read to you 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says all Scripture is God-breathed. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but the Bible is clearly the most influential book that's ever been written. It's interesting, it was written by 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Its writers come from all walks of life. You have a prophet, Jeremiah. You have a priest, Zechariah, a shepherd, Amos, and David, and a king, David. You have a servant, Nehemiah. You have a doctor, Luke, you have a tax collector, Matthew, and even a legalistic Pharisee, Paul. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. A gap of more than 400 years separates the Old and the New Testament. The Word of God was inscribed on sheepskin, goatskin, papyrus, and parchment. The first five books of the Bible were written in the Sinai, the desert wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. At least four letters of Paul were written while he was in prison. Prison. Daniel wrote from the courts of Babylon. Some of the Psalms were written while David kept sheep in Judea. Yet when you read the Bible as a whole, recorded over all those years by so many different men, written under so many different conditions, 
you're going to find that it tells one story and bears one theme. It bears the mark of one author, God. Now, listen, this is going to be a real easy sermon, amen, because nobody's going to be under conviction today. <laughs> well, maybe not. The Holy Spirit can do that anyway. If I, if I chose 10 of you in this room, and I said, I'm going to give each of you the task of writing a book on the topic of the meaning of life. You have a year to get it done. But you're not allowed to discuss with each other what you're writing. And at the end of the year, what are the chances of those 10 books even having the same theme, let alone agree with each other on specifics? Even though you go to the same church, you live in the same town, you live in the same area, speak the same language, well, the Bible has a consistent theme from beginning to end, and the pieces are all interwoven. That's not an accident. That is not a coincidence. In the very beginning in Genesis, you describe by Moses, you have a, a paradise with a special tree in the middle of that paradise. And then in the book of Revelation, you have a redeemed paradise with a tree in the middle of that paradise in the book of Revelation. And everything in between is written to show how God has provided a way from sinful man to get from the curse of sin to the redemption through God's salvation. Second Peter 1.21 tells us that the author, who the author is, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, that leads me to the acquisition. How do we get it? What's the inspiration? Again, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed. And I know a lot of you have heard this stuff before, but there's some of you who are new believers. Some of you are new to even having a Bible. And I want you to understand, so those of you who've heard this, you can rest and leave refreshed. But if you want to sleep, go ahead. But for those of you who don't, I want you to understand what you're holding in your hand. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, just in those five books, there's 680 claims to divine inspiration of the first five books. And there are claims 418 times in the historical books in the Old Testament, 195 times in the poetic books, 1,307 times in the prophetic books that claim it's the Word of God. In the New Testament, there are 300 direct quotations and at least 1,000 indirect references from the Old Testament, almost all of them declaring or implying that they were God's own words. The book of Hebrews opens with the declaration, God, after he spoke a long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and in these last days has spoken to us through his son, Hebrews 1. One and two. Now, let me give you a couple of theories that people claim about the Bible or the inspiration of the Bible, and you're going to hear this. 
The first one is natural inspiration. In other words, there are some who maintain that the Bible is only just a remarkable human book with no divine inspiration. The writers of the Bible have said to have been genius in the same way as gifted artists and poets and musicians have created masterpiece. They classify it as exceptional literature, sort of like Homer's Odyssey or Muhammad's Quran or Dante's Divine Comedy or the writings of Shakespeare. It's just a book. Some will even go as far to suggest that the Bible, although not divinely inspired, is the greatest of all human writings as Christ was the greatest of all human teachers. It's just a book. We don't hold to that. And then there's the idea of partial inspiration. You'll hear people say, according to this view, that inspiration reaches only to doctrinal teachings and precepts, and that the historical, geographical, or scientific statements in the Scripture are are held to be suspect. You can't really believe it. Inspiration only had to do with the author's thoughts and not the actual words. And this view maintains that God suggested the ideas and the general trends of the revelation and then left man to express himself in his own language as he desired. But along with this view is the idea that some portions of the Bible are more inspired than others. And the problem, though, it refuses to place any credibility in the verbal inspiration, which I'll cover in just a second, But the damage this does, now listen, if the words are not inspired, then why do we even look at the word pictures or do an exegetical study of the the words in Scripture? And it's also in direct opposition to Scripture for the Bible itself insists on the revelation of its word. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. And if the expressions are inexact or uncertain, any assurance as to the thoughts of God vanishes. You can't say, thus saith the Lord. How do you know what part is inspired? Well, there's another theory called degrees of inspiration, which is based upon the assumption that some parts of the Bible are more inspired than other parts of the Bible. It gives latitude for the contention that the Bible is infested with errors. I've heard this. I've heard it in Baptist schools at one time. I hope that's been weeded out by now. But this view gives birth to the idea that the Bible contains the Word of God. It's not the Word of God. It contains the Word of God. And many claim that the Bible is full of myths, legends, and tribal folklore, which has been carried down through the years. It's maintained that we can accept the humanistic side of the Bible, but when it comes to the miraculous or the mysterious or that which does not fit into our exact philosophy, then it's attributed to some kind of fancy or exaggeration. The product teaching is anything goes theology, which is devoid of divine life. And I'll have you know, I've heard professors explain away all the miracles of the Bible. So it's out there. And I guarantee you all three of those that I just mentioned you are out there. And you probably know some people who hold to those. There's also a view which sounds good, 
It's called, I call it mechanical inspiration. It was where God dictated the scriptures to man and controlled them in a mechanical way as they wrote them. In other words, it's, it's like a secretary taking dictation from somebody and writing it down. In this view, the writer's personality was completely set aside. And I understand them attempting to defend and uplift the scripture, but if that theory is correct, and God did in fact dictate the scriptures in a fashion suggested and told the men verbally what to write down, then it would be uniform in its character and in its structure. But you can look at the word of God and you can tell that it is uniform in its theme, but its, but its structure is totally different. So what do we believe? How, when you say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, when I believe that it was God-breathed, because the writings of John are distinctively John's, and while the writings of Paul are distinctively Pauline, they're different. Well, I'll tell you the view I hold to, and most people who believe the Word of God do. The verbal sometimes called the plenary inspiration of the Bible. It means this, that in the original writings, the Holy Spirit guided the choice of words which were to be used. However, the characteristics and personalities of the writer were preserved and their styles and vocabularies were used without the intrusion of error, and only God could do that. For example, Isaiah does not write like Ezekiel. And Daniel doesn't write like Jeremiah. Moses had his unique touch and speaks of his own experience. And so does King David. But Moses writes matter-of-factly, and David writes with a lot of emotion and sensitivity. John the fisherman's quiet and profound. Peter is bold and unpolished. Paul is scholarly and systematic. Luke writes like a physician drawing from the writings of others as if he were writing a, a thesis and making careful observations about health issues as he tells his story. And each of them displays their own personality and style, and yet they were all 100% involved when they went in what they wrote. Their works were undeniably by men, but 100% by God too. They wrote what they wrote, drawing upon their own thoughts and using their own styles and choices of words, but the whole while being perfectly moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit to do that. And then God ensured that the things they wrote and the things they used and the ideas they conveyed, they were exactly what he wanted written so that they taught the truth of God. Plenary means that the accuracy of the verbal inspiration secure is, is extended to every portion of the Bible so that it is in all parts both infallible as to truth and final as divine authority. The word plenary means full, complete, entire, absolute. It means the inspiration was entire and without restriction. It's affirmed right here in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed. Prophets transmitted God's word, 1 Thessalonians 
The writing, excuse me, the written revelation is so complete that nothing needs to be added to it, Revelation 22, 18 to 19. So this leaves no room for outside or extra biblical revelation which is contrary to the word of God. We believe the revelation of God is complete and there is no new revelation coming from God. It's here. I want to remind you of the accuracy of the Bible. We have more manuscripts of the biblical text than any other ancient writings. That tells us how God has preserved it over the centuries. We have roughly 25,000 partial or complete New Testament manuscripts, including nearly 6,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and almost 10,000 more in other ancient languages. But even if we did not have those, we could still reconstruct the New Testament just using the writings of the early church fathers who quoted from the New Testament over 86,000 times. There are 14,000 manuscripts and fragments of the Old Testament. And if you put them all side by side to see if there's any variation in them, about one variation every 1,580 words and 99% of them is just a spelling variation. It's not a word variation. The Bible predicted the rebirth of Israel. Do the math. You take Ezekiel 3, excuse me, Ezekiel 4, 3 through 6. You calculate the days using a lunar calendar. You take into account the leap years and the duplication of 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. You come up with May 15th, 1948. That's the exact day the British officially declared Israel as a nation. The Bible predicted the arrival of Jesus to the day in Jerusalem. Do the math. Prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, you calculate the days using a lunar calendar, consider the leap years and the duplication of 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., you come up with March 30th, A.D. 33. March 30th was a Sunday that year, the date of the triumphal entry, they believe, See, the Bible predicted the Messiah coming 173,885 days in advance. The Old Testament has 48 prophecies specifically to the Messiah and 300 ramifications referring to him. Every prophecy was published 500 years before he came. You can't explain that other than God. <laughs> We also see the agelessness of the Bible, the endurance of it. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Governments try to outlaw it. 
forces have tried to destroy it. Infidels ridicule it. Liberals deny it. The forces of hell have united against it. But the more it's attacked, the stronger it becomes. It's here to stay. In fact, there's only two things on this earth that are eternal. People, we are eternal, and the Word of God. It shall stand forever. Now, most of you know this, but I do want to cover this for some of you who may be new believers. What's the arrangement of the Bible? What are the divisions? It's divided into two main sections, Old and New Testament, as we call it. The word testament means covenant or agreement. The difference between the two testaments is that the Old Testament is the record of God's dealing with people under the law. And the New Testament is the record of God's dealing in the new covenant with people under grace. The old covenant ended. The new covenant began at the cross. When it comes to the Old Testament, first five books are called the Pentateuch. The word means five-volume book. We call it the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. They are a distinct unit called the law. And these five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. John 1.45 and John 7.19 tells us that God inspired Moses to write these books. The next 12 books are historical books. They show us how the Lord brings the chosen people into the promised land and how the law cannot bring salvation. They deal with a continual apostasy and failure of Israel, and they tell us the stories of the great leaders and the kings of Israel. These books, these 12 books are Joshua down through Esther. Actually, the historical record in the Old Testament ends in the book of Nehemiah. And all the books after Nehemiah in your Bible fit into the period between Genesis and Nehemiah. Next five books are the poetry books. They're books of encouragement, comfort, wisdom, and songs. They're also called the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then come the prophets, the 17 books that are divided into two sections. We call them the major and the minor prophets. Has nothing to do with the value, has everything to do with the volume. For example, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, they're the major, they're the most writings, the, bit, the, the more volume. But then the minor prophets go from Hosea to Malachi and that doesn't mean they're any less important. They're just not as much written there. If, you, if you're reading through the Bible, you know there's a difference in the major and minor prophets as you're reading through it. 39 books in the Old Testament, four divisions, law, history, poetry, and prophets. 400-year gap, intertestamental period, we call it, between Malachi and Matthew. And then you have the New Testament Four, first four books are the Gospels, the historical record, the biograph, biographical books that tell us about the life and teachings of Jesus, as well as his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And then, and you know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One historical book, Acts. 
The book is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke and deals with the origin and growth of the early church. You want to know about the early church? Read the book of Acts. And then you have what we call the Pauline epistles, the letters of Paul, 14 books. We divide them into three sections. You have the church epistles. And by the way, epistle means letter. It's not the wife of an apostle. <laughs> As one little boy thought, it's a letter. The church epistles, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Then you have the pastoral epistles written to Timothy and Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and then the personal letters, Philemon, and personally, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. I can't prove it, but you can't disprove it. So I still believe he wrote it. But it's, it's considered in the Pauline epistles. And then you have the general epistles, the general letters, the seven books that carry the name of its author, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. And then the one prophetical book, you know that one, it's Revelation, not Revelations, it's one Revelation, just one. It's written by the Apostle John, it's the last book of the New Testament, so there are four Gospels, one book of history, 14 Pauline epistles, seven general epistles, and one book of prophecy for a total of 27 books in the New Testament. So you have 66 books in the Bible. Now, we all know one of the reasons that we preach and study and teach from the Bible is because it applies to life. So let me briefly mention what I call the applicability of the Bible or the rev relevance of it. Hebrews 4.12, listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, when I tell you there's three parts to man, the Bible bears that out, body, soul, and spirit. As a mirror, it reveals our spiritual condition, James 1, 23 and 4. As a hammer, it breaks man's pride, Jeremiah 23, 29. As a sword, it divides joint and marrow, Hebrews 4.12. As a bomb, it heals, Psalm 107.20. As a lamp, it guides our feet, Psalm 119.105. As a fire, it purges out the dross, Jeremiah 23.29. As a seed, it provides fruit in our life, Luke 8.11. Because the Bible comes from directly from God, it equips us to do all things pertaining to him and in our life. Do you want to know God's will? Study the Bible. Do you want to fulfill your mission in life? Study the Bible. Do you want to know what God wants you to do? Study the Bible. Do you want to live a better life? Study the Bible. Do you want a freedom from sin and so forth? Study the Bible. You want God to be pleased with your life? Study the Bible. I read of a man who, who was an art enthusiast in New York, and on the walls of his office, he had some outstanding collection of etchings and paintings, including the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And for a long time, he would come into his office, and that picture was always hanging crooked. The frame was crooked. And he would straighten it up, and the next day he'd come in, it'd be crooked again. 
Finally, he realized that the lady who cleaned the office each night was responsible for turning that. And she, he said, why? Why are you doing that? She said, well, I have to hang it crooked to make the tower hang straight. But as you know, in the same fashion, people will try to twist the scripture to fit their life to make it look straight. Now, this is the standard. And when we look next to it, we're the ones that are crooked. I mentioned to you last week this phrase in, in chapter uh, 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 16, describes the practical impact of the Bible. God's Word tells us what is right, teaching and doctrine. It tells us what is not right, rebuking or reproof. It tells us how to get right for correction. It tells us how to stay right for training in righteousness. And when you study the Bible for all it's worth, you begin to realize you're not reading the Bible. The Bible is reading you <laughs> because it does that to you and me. And last but not least is the aim or the theme of the Bible it begins in the book of Genesis, ends in the book of Revelation, and there is a thread of redemption that runs all the way through. The redemption of mankind, the moment that man sinned, recorded in the third chapter of Genesis, where he died spiritually, and the penalty of spiritual death was upon him. In that same chapter, God declares his intention to redeem mankind from death in Genesis 3.15 by sending someone. And that someone was Jesus, the Messiah. The Old Testament is a history of the Hebrew race through which this person who would crush the head of Satan and redeem mankind would be born. And why do you think more than once that Satan has tried to annihilate the Jewish people? There are a lot of sub-themes in the Old Testament, but the main theme of the Old Testament is the preparation of the one who would be born in the fullness of time in Galatians 4.4 and and the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, the hope for Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, ultimately born the son of Eve. Matthew records that genealogy all the way back to show that Jesus is who the Bible is talking about. So my friends, you need to lay hold of this until it lays hold of you. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again. Your new life did not come from your earthly parents because the life they gave you will end in death. But this new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. And if you don't know Jesus, 
You don't have this life abundantly. You don't have this life that's going to take you to God one day. Your sin has separated you from God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My prayer is that you don't, if you don't know Jesus, you give your life to him today. But I also pray that you will appreciate this. Not just say, oh, I believe the Bible. I hadn't even begun to tell you the people who died for you to have a copy of this in English. We'll do that another time. People have died for us to have this. So don't take it for granted. To see somebody kiss the Bible and to cry when they held one. I got to admit, I felt ashamed thinking, you know, I just take for granted that I have a Bible. But it's God's Word. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 